you choir, thank you choir. As, as you were singing, I found myself gazing up at the stained glass window with our, our Savior image in it. So thank you so much. I was riding the school bus from school to what I think was the second grade. It was bus 14. Diane was the bus driver. Every day, I rode the bus to my Aunt Gail and Uncle Enzel's house. My younger brother stayed there while I was at school, and my mom was at work. Beside the house, going up to their house, it was the world's longest gravel driveway. It led all the way right up to it, and off by the side of their house was his tire shop that he worked in. And behind their house was the greatest catfish pond I had ever seen. Always a guaranteed catch, especially if you threw the extra catfish food in there. Every day was very simple. Except this day, however, when the bus pulled to the stop to drop us off, my cousin John and I, as we were getting off the bus, we noticed there were a lot of cars at the house. And with a lot of cars, there were a lot of people there, too. And as we walked down that endless gravel driveway, we noticed and felt that there was a lot of anxiety taking place. Turns out, my three-year-old brother, Eric, was missing. Within minutes, my mom drove in as fast, but probably on two wheels, with her little Capri would take. They looked up underneath the house. They walked and searched the surrounding fields around the house. The rescue squad was about to start looking behind. My second grade self didn't have any idea how long my brother had been missing, but I knew it was too long. I can still hear my mom say, where's my boy? See, my uncle and my aunt lived out in the country. And in Cherokee County, out of the country, it was nowhere near anything. Lots of woods and hills and fields surrounded the house. My brother could have been anywhere. The problem was that no one knew where. And then the phone rang. You remember those old rotary phones on the wall? My aunt still had one of those. It was a lady who lived on a different county road. Or up and over the ridge if you went through the woods. Eric was there. Safe and sound. My mom grabbed me and put me in the car and sped me off we went. Her embrace of him was tight. Have you ever lost something? Have you ever lost something valuable? Fellow parents, have you ever lost your child? When I was talking to Hope about where I was going with this sermon, she was like, oh, like the time when the kids were little and I had them shopping at Belk. And all of a sudden, I looked up and they were gone. My heart panicked. And in those couple of moments that seemed like eternity, it turned out they had crawled in the middle of one of those circular clothing racks that they were hiding see. Mission accomplished. They hid well. Those moments when we feel like we have lost the whereabouts of our children are terrifying. Maybe that's why the Find My iPhone app is one of the most used apps, maybe the most used app by parents. And it's not really to find your phone, it's to keep up and find where your kids are. Maybe that is why they have actually shortened the name recently from Find My iPhone to Find My. Find My Son, or Find My Daughter, or in Hope's case, Find My Husband. Or you may use the Life 360 app, and some parents know this, right? It not only keeps up with the whereabouts of where their child is, but it also can track how fast they got from one place to another. I am so glad my mom did not have that back in the day. Well, our scripture today that Thomas read so well earlier also deals with a busy child. This time it is 12-year-old Jesus. He, Mary, and Joseph take their annual trip to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Traveling from Jerusalem to, I mean from Nazareth to Jerusalem, a group of family and friends would have taken like a three to five day journey. The festival would have lasted a week, and then they would have begun the trip and returned back home. Except, on the trip back to Nazareth, Jesus isn't visited. They go an entire day's travel before noticing that Jesus is not among the crowd of family and friends. Can you hear it? Mary to Joseph. Have you checked in on Jesus? Joseph, back to Mary. No, I thought he was doing that with you. Oh, he'll be fine. That's a typical dad response, right? And in that moment, Mary does her best impression of the mother in the mission home alone. But Kevin! And then falls over, passes out. Let's pull over for a second. Can we imagine us in our present day traveling an entire day not being sure where our child is? We may 
they love our family and friends, but do we really trust them enough not to be checking on the workouts of our children every 15 seconds? We'll be checking that Life 360 app to make sure exactly where they were and how fast their part of caravan is traveling. And then we would be texting our Aunt Gail to make sure everything was okay. Lost is a matter of perspective. Jesus isn't lost. He stayed at the temple in Jerusalem. And after three days of searching, Mary and Joseph finally on Joseph there, seated among the teachers in a full discussion. Their son filled in their questions. And all of the leaders are amazed at Jesus' level of understanding and his own responses. Joseph and Mary aren't quite as amazed. They're anxious, as can be expected. Mary says to her son, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus responds, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Jesus, to his understanding, was never missing, never lost. Nor was he not where he was supposed to be. As a young, adolescent, 12-year-old, he was fully confident that he was where he should be. That's his viewpoint, right? His parents' understanding of the situation is totally different. Lost is a matter of perspective. Their prerogative of the last three to four days of searching and wondering where in the world he was is not the same as his. And my guess is that there were several discussions between mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, that were intentionally left out of Luke's account of the story. Like, when we find him, he's going to stay right here with us. We're going to put one of those dog leashes on him like people using their kids at amusement parks. He will not leave our side. It's interesting to look at the different perspectives within the story. It's also good to take the story from different views. Most times when we read this story of Jesus staying at the temple, we read it with the viewpoint of Jesus being the Son of God, and his divine self must be at the temple. Our Christian theology believes that Jesus was both fully God and fully human as he walked and lived on the earth. Traditionally, we let this story lean on the fully God side of who Jesus was. But I want to invite us to read it from the other side of today. Jesus is 12 years old at the time. At this age, he was still considered a child under Jewish understanding. Did you note how Luke recorded it? The boy Jesus stayed at the temple. He was fully under the care and guidance of Joseph and Mary. And after this age, he would have had his bar mitzvah, which would have transitioned him into the next level of maturity in Jewish understanding. From this viewpoint, Jesus staying at the temple and his response to Mary, his mother, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be at my father's house? Takes on a much more developmental field. Jesus stays at the temple, at my father's house, as I call it. Not solely because he is God and seeks to be at the temple physically, because that is where God should be, but rather, Jesus wants to be at the temple, because faith and temple life have been a common, natural part of his family life. Did you know that Jesus' response to his mother, where he said he has to be there? Joseph and Mary took their, take their family to Jerusalem every year. They spend a week while they are there for the Passover festival. In that, it created a passion within Jesus for the temple. Jesus knows the temple as his father's house, not just because of his unique divine relation to God the Father, but also, maybe more so, of his 12-year-old developmental age because he has practiced, because faith has been practiced and lived out in their home and in their faith community. Fred Craddock writes, home, temple, and synagogue form him, meaning Jesus. So we see that consistency of faith practices, we see the consistency of faith practices in Jesus' family. And why should we be surprised? At every point, up until this point in Jesus' story, for Mary and Joseph, they are found to be a faithful, righteous person. Mary in Luke 1, when the angel Gabriel comes to her to announce to her she will conceive of the promised Messiah, responds with faithful obedience. Her words 
I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Also in that passage, we find out that her aunt Elizabeth comes from the lineage of Aaron, who is Moses' brother, and began the Levitical line of priests in the Jewish history. Mary's family has deep ministerial roots. Joseph described in Matthew 1 as a righteous man, and is found to respond in a faithful obedience at every opportunity given him. And then, as we heard in last week's sermon, right on the clockwork, at day 8, Jesus was circumcised, and then, but later, they took him to the temple to be dedicated, and they offered sacrifices. And now, at the end of chapter 2, we find out that they go to Jerusalem every year for the Passover, the festival. They weren't your typical Christmas Day or Easter Sunday followers. Practices of faith were a part of Jesus' family, both in the home, but also in the faith community. The temple is an easy place for Jesus to stay because he knows it well. Let me repeat that. The temple is an easy place for Jesus to stay because he knows it well. Can our kids say the same? Does this place at 600 governors feel as comfortable to our kids as home does? Do they feel connected and embraced, safe and secure as they do at home or with their peers or at the ballpark? The temple is an easy place for Jesus to stay because he is known. Joseph and Mary find Jesus sitting among the teachers, asking them questions, giving answers, in full dialogue. His parents also didn't just jump off the ledge of panic when they didn't have him right beside him when they began the journey back to home. It was a full day before they even recognized that he was not with them. That tells me that Joseph and Mary trusted his family and their friends. Their circle was bigger than their immediate household. Jesus was known among others, and he was trusted to be with them. It was even a little bit later in Luke, it says that he was known as Joseph's son. Jesus' faith community, made up of family and friends, was a trusted part of his family. And in his family and in his faith community, Jesus has taught the law, he learned justice, and he practices compassion. Fuller Seminary, and there's Fuller New Institute, several years ago, gave us a great goal as a church. It's called the 5 1 ratio. And it comes from this idea that for, like on a youth trip, you take one adult for every five students. But what if we flipped out of that? For every student or child or kid that we have in our church, what if we have five adults who know them and are investing into them? What if every student and child had five adults who know them, who celebrate them, who send birthday cards to them, who say hi to them, who celebrate them, who give hugs to them, who points them towards their God and ultimately shares life with them? A critical part of development for kids and teens is to be known and to have a place to belong. And if we will be intentional to be that kind of a community, we will welcome them and welcome to know them. I also think our students and our kids will find that this place will be an easy place for them to stay. And they will desire that. But let's be honest for a second. Having a community of shared trust and belonging takes work, doesn't it? It's so easy to cluster and have closed groups. It's easy to keep our schedule so full that we don't have time to talk and connect with folks. My friend Ronnie Brewer shared with me when I was a college freshman that our circles should always have an empty chair at the end of the So he set it up in the setting where we, all, we were all sitting in one big circle, but he added one additional chair to it. He said our circles should always have an empty chair to welcome someone new to the group. We get to know someone in addition to those in our circle currently. And then when we do, we make the commitment we not only know them, but to disciple them. The temple is an easy place for Jesus to stay because he knows it well and he is known there. Both of these facets come from Jesus' home to be in a foundation for him. Jesus isn't just a product of his community. More intimately, his parents laid the foundation. What made Jesus' home such a strong foundation for him is Joseph and Mary. Sure, in this story, we find them being anxious and probably frazzled after a three or four day search for their son. But they are together in both the anxiety and in the search. And through the birth story of Jesus, they are constantly listed together. Even when jo- 
Elizabeth had serious questions about how Mary's pregnancy came about. Who was going to quietly end the relationship because of this love for her? So from all accounts, we, we can see that Joseph and Mary had a strong marriage built on commitment to both each other and to God. Recently, we were driving up I-65. We were heading north to host parents for Thanksgiving. We got on at Ardmore, heading towards Nashville. Just shortly over the Tennessee line, I saw billboards. It read, marriage reduces the probability of child poverty by 80%. This was fascinating to me. It shows just another way that healthy marriages between moms and dads have long-lasting effects on their children. We've probably all heard how divorced children, children of divorced parents, are twice as likely to experience divorce as another person. The reverse is true. Healthy marriages have positive effects on their children. From a non-faith side of development, David Ryber writes that the average child is better physically, cognitively, and emotionally than biological parents stay together. And I can say from the spiritual side, every year I note at graduate weekend, how many of the students still have their parents still together. You can tell it in just the demeanor of the child and also their class. They're more confident and usually they have a greater desire for faith. Our passage ends with Jesus going home with Joseph and Mary to Nazareth and is obedient to them. He, shows, he grows in wisdom and stature in his favor. Jesus keeps growing. Faith continues to be nurtured in his life by his parents and his community. It's a sweet ending to the story. And it's here that we may experience disconnections from the story. As parents, we may do everything we know possible to create a loving, God-focused home. And our kids may still go somewhere different in how they choose to live a life. Either they didn't come home obedient or they never found the temple or church to be a place where it was easy to be. Or maybe it's that our own marriage isn't how I painted Joseph and Mary's be. Maybe it's holding together by a string by it broke a long time ago. You may be wondering why my brother Eric left my aunt's and uncle's house to go into the woods. He wanted to go to my grandmother's house. She lived about a half mile down the road. And I'm guessing that he thought it was an easy walk through the woods. He wanted to go to grandma's house. Why? Because it's grandma's house. Her cornbread was always hot and good at lunch. And she always had a hug for anyone who came in the door. Jesus wanted Jesus to stay at the temple. Actually, it says he had to be there. Because it was a good, easy place for him to be. He is known and welcome there. Jesus was where actually Joseph and Mary had raised him to be. So we may even wonder, why did why they just start looking for him there? So how can we respond? How can we respond to this? What are some tangible actions we can do to better align our family to faith and the practices of faith and that this place may be a place of that's just a natural part and foundation of who we are? I say, one, we need to make consistency to this place a part of our life. Two, we need to make the community of this place a part of our life. We can be consistent to it, but we may never engage relationally to it. But we need to, both of those is what church is all about. Consistency and connection and community. Three, if you're married, you need to make, and we need to make our marriage the top priority of our life for time and devotion. And for some of you who may not have kids in a home, maybe you can be one of those five adults who will intentionally connect with a child or a student in our church. And lastly, may, may we allow the grace of God to actually make these things be a reality in us. May our kids never be lost. May they only know that the church is, is the best place where they can always be found. Amen. In a moment, we're going to sing and respond. Number 150, as with gladness, men of old. 
You may want to respond the same ways to our gathering and our time of worship here today to God's Word. If you do, we ministers will be in the front. We would love you to talk with you. Maybe you want to maybe come forward and make your faith public. Maybe it's a decision that you have made and you want to follow into the steps of baptism this week. Or maybe you want to be a part of this faith of family. Maybe you, like I said there at the end, maybe you want to be consistent to this place and connect intentionally with this place. As we call that membership. Maybe you want to be a part of that. Whatever your decision is, we invite you.